And we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids. And uh, bye. Adios. I love you. <laughs> She's not bashful. Uh, just a couple of things before we uh, start. So I was so happy this morning. Uh, we, we ran out of books for our class that we began today, so that was a good thing. Uh, but I have more for Wednesday, so that's another good thing. But it was so good. We were filled up, and uh, at least it was in my class. And uh, so if you're here today and you weren't able to get to a class this morning, I encourage you to do that, or Wednesday. We'll do it all again at 6.30 again uh, Wednesday night. Uh, but we started good in our seven realities for experiencing God. Uh, the other thing is, um, I need some help with some paint, paint and trim work here. And uh, it's either, for me, if I say I'm going to paint, I have to hide all the guns in my house. And the reason why that is, if, if I've got a paint, I would rather shoot myself in the foot than paint and the reason why that is, is because usually when it's over, I look something otherworldly, and the paint on the wall never really looks good either. Uh, so if you would like to, to get some trim work painted downstairs, I know Gary would appreciate it because he's got some folks in his class that can't make it up the stairs, so we would like to have at least a couple of the rooms downstairs finished so we can move in there. And um, and have class. So come see me if a paintbrush fits your hand. And we'll line out a time. We'll work around your schedule. I'll cook for you. I will baptize your children. I will... Whatever it takes, we'll do. We're beginning in Acts today. And normally when we read the first section of a, of a book like Acts, which is really, you know, a lot, of, a lot of conversation goes back and forth as to whether or not this was just a historical book or a theological book or a combination of the two, which is certainly what it is. But normally in an introduction to things like this, we look at it and say, well, that really doesn't have much to say to us. It's written, in this case, particularly to one person. And uh, Luke is... Uh, it's kind of laying out why he's doing this and what's been going on since the last time that he wrote. Uh, so there seems to be a gap in between the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So, so those of you that didn't know, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And um, this gentleman, Luke, he was more than likely a physician and he traveled with Paul extensively. Um, and some believe that this was... Uh, written as a part of those travels, we really don't know. We just know that in Acts we find what the first church was all about and that we have a lot to learn from that first church uh, even still today. And there will be some that will say, well, that world and this world is entirely different so we can't really do church the way that they did it in the first century. 
And we certainly can't do it in the way that we did it in the first century, but the worlds are definitely, definitely not that different. Today, what we face in the world is no different than what these Christians faced in their world, except for one major difference. None of us have to worry about having our head cut off or being crucified upside down or being slid down a razor blade uh, because of what we believe. So there is a stark difference to how we are treated for what we believe, but there is no difference in the way that the world responds to what we believe than it was then. It's just that they may have different reasons for the way that they respond and also the way that the church responds as to who it is, who we are. And in that regard, we have much to learn in the 21st century post-Christian age that we live in. We have much to learn from that first church as to how to truly be a church and to what power and strength that that provides one another, but also the power that it has over sin and death. Jesus did not say that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it just to be talking and to hear himself talk. This was a truth that was realized early on in the church and that we sometimes remove ourselves from that responsibility if not even the belief that it's possible today. So as we move through these very first few verses, we discover some things about ourselves that you may not have looked at before. We discover some things about the way that we maybe assume we should do things in church that we shouldn't assume anymore. And we certainly learn a lot about how the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit as it's described in this book, is it's not given the kind of attention that is absolutely non-negotiable for the church and for the Christian life. So in five verses, the beginning five verses, we're going to look at those three things broadly because verses 1 through 11 of this book really give an introduction and an outline for the rest of the entire book. So the themes that I touch on today and the, the and the themes that I will touch on next week we will touch on again and again and again and again to where you would think this guy's got nothing to say new about the book of Acts. But Luke wrote in such a way as to, as to, as to bolster exactly what God is doing in the church so that we hear it again and again and again in various situations so that we can begin to see just how important, just how non-negotiable, just how powerful, and just how utterly necessary it is to the mission of the church because God designed it that way. So in verse 1, he says, I wrote this first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. And after he had given instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered... He also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Just to hear those words sets all kinds of things into motion for us. First of all, there's a period of waiting. There's some things that have to happen. There's some preparation that must be done before God is, before God is going to be able to move on. And we find ourselves in that same place as we look at this whole book of Acts and as we especially look at the first portion of it. We find ourselves understanding that to move with God, we have to be prepared in a proper way. We don't just jump into this thing and in and out of this thing as we please and expect it to be effective for us or for God or for the mission. There's some preparation that occurs so that when the fullness of God comes upon us, we are ready and there's no stopping. It is like a train that leaves the station and it's not coming back. So I want us to look at this today. In this first little paragraph, verses 1 through 3, we discover that, that Luke is making some things very clear. One is that there's some teaching going on, and that went on before Jesus suffered and after Jesus suffered. Meaning this, Jesus taught His disciples before He was crucified and raised from the grave, and He taught them after He was crucified and raised from the grave. That is important. We also see that Luke points out that there were some convincing proofs that Jesus was raised from the grave. So he's he is presenting in this a very objective means of understanding and accepting who Jesus was and what happened. There are facts that you can point to. There is history that you can record. There are things that you can go and see and feel and touch and know that this happened. Objective truth. But then he also points out that there's an experience that is quite subjective and that is how the Spirit comes upon us as individuals and what that means. Now this objective truth and subjective existence that we live in as Christians has come under uh, attack in certain days and, and at least in our day. You've heard of the postmodern movement, hopefully by now, and it's this whole idea that there's really nothing that is absolute in the world everything is relative even what you decide to be true can be relative as long as you believe it to be true if you're wishy-washy about on what you believe to be true then your truth really doesn't matter but if you have your own set of truths and it's different from my truth but you believe it as true then that is your truth and that is called a postmodern way of viewing things in the modern area in the modern era when Newton came up on the scene, there was science that existed that you could not change. There was no relativity until Einstein showed up. And then here comes Einstein, and well, everything's relative. And when Einstein said, well, if, if the physical world is relative, the philosophers begin to say, well, there's no more philosophy that really explains life. Every philosophy is relative. And so let's go find a philosophy that fits my truth and so on and so forth until finally, we finally got to the place where religion has become this postmodern idea of truth where it just needs to be what I accept it to believe is true and what's good for me. That's the world that the church is in. That's the world that you are in. 
That is what many churches have become, and that's what the world has become. And Luke is pointing out a very important thing here. There is objective truth to who Jesus is. He lived. He died. He was raised from the grave. He spent 40 days with His disciples teaching them. And then when He left, He gave them a particular thing to do, which when we read the rest of Acts, we know that it was so real to these people and so justifiable and so verifiable that they went out into the world and they did exactly what He asked them to do. Objective truth. Objective living. Based on things that cannot change. But then there's also the Holy Spirit that He mentions here. And the Spirit is rather subjective in our life, isn't it? Nobody here experiences the Spirit of God in the same way. So it has to be subjective. Nobody experiences the Spirit of God in the same way simply because of the purpose of the Spirit of God in your life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes it this way. There's a place in God's heart that belongs just to you. I'm going to paraphrase it, by the way. But there's a place in God's heart that belongs just for you. And He put a spirit into your life, a soul, And He has a spirit that moves about with your soul. And that's how we know God. And that's how we communicate with God. And that's how we can know the heart of God. To the point that Paul says that you are able through your spirit to know the very things that that are possessed by the heart of God concerning you. Meaning that God God has no secrets about who you are. The fullness of God may be known by you particularly for you. And this is a remarkable thing to imagine and to know to be true. That God would arrange life in such a way that we could know Him and know ourselves with such meaning and such depth. But that Spirit that is able to communicate at that depth also instructs us. So what we know is faith Objectively, we also know as faith subjectively because the Spirit is teaching us all the time to the fullness that we will allow. The real question today for us is, how willing are we to allow the Spirit of God to interact and move and have its being with us? What things are there in our life that tend to shut that down? And I say to you, for the most of us, it is this. It's the world that we live in, that we, were, that, we are, that we are here to change. The very thing that, that we are here to change is what, is what is, we are allowing to keep that change from happening. We're afraid. And it's time to no longer be afraid. That is what Luke is laying out here. That Jesus taught and we should understand and be taught. And that the Spirit is alive And it is there for us to experience God in a very personal and subjective way. To rely on one more than the other gives us a lopsided view of God and a lopsided understanding of our mission. And we are unable to function standing on one leg trying to make sense of all these things.
we must have a complete appreciation and understanding of what God, how God is speaking to us and what He is speaking to us and what that means for us. That one objective truth we can never let go of. So much in the church today relies on somebody's story. Let me tell you what this means to me. Until ultimately, what happens quite often in churches today is that someone's authority, someone's story is the only authority that is ever presented as a matter of worship before God. People, we cannot give up the authority of Christ and we cannot give up the authority of Scripture. We cannot do it. There are many in the world today that would have you say that, well, it's a good book, it's an old book, but there's really a lot about it that is verifiably untrue. It's our job. It's our job to know what it says. So when I say that we need to study together, I mean we need to study together so that we know the Bible better. There are people who don't believe it that know us that know it better than you do. Some of them know it better than I do. If we expect for the love of God to change the world, we have to know what He is saying through His book. We have to experience it with Him to know it and understand it. Secondly, Luke reminds us that there is a necessity for instruction before there will ever be revival. How many of you have said, how many of you have heard, we need a revival in, usually in America. We need a revival in America. Or we need a revival in the church. Okay? And what we really say in then is what we, re- we, need, we need to have some preacher, better than that, a traveling evangelist come in and we'll invite everybody we can to get to the church and he'll preach and uh, some people will get saved and we'll baptize and that'll be revival. That's what we call revival down here in the South. Is, uh, that, that's, that's how you measure if you had a good revival or not. And that's not revival at all. That's soul winning and that's important. That's definitely important, but that's not revival. Revival is when a, a mass number of people, like sitting in this room, begin to experience the fullness of God in their life each and every day. That's when revival comes. That's what Jesus came and offered to the world. See, revival began on the day that the tomb was empty. And, and Jesus has been in this work of revival ever since. You can't change it. It is, he, he is, he is given his life And his life is alive to bring about change in this world. And revival is change measured by how full of of your life is God. Or better said, how much of God is in your life each and every day. That's revival. And before there will be revival, we see right here that instruction has to come. Scripture study has to come before there is revival. Why is that? You should should be able to understand that. Why is that so important? 
For God to revive a bunch of people and then not know anything about him or what his word says or what the mission is or what the purpose is. What, what is, he's just going to revive you. He's going to come in here with the fullness of who he is and you're not going to understand a thing about it. He has given 2000 years or more, three, 3800 years worth of scripture for us to know and understand who he is so that when we do experience his fullness, it is full all the more. But we cannot have revival without sinking into His Word and soaking it up. If you wonder why we've got this emphasis to be a part of Bible study, is this because I want to see a revival in our church? I hear a lot of you. I hear a lot. Very frustrating for you, I know, to see that some people aren't faithful or this or that or the other. That's not accomplishing anything. Get them into Bible study. Study together here. Study together at your home. But don't just point fingers at people and say they're not, they're not doing their part or they're not this or they're not that. We're, this is a church. And you can't point your finger at anybody until you point your finger first at Jesus. Because it's His church. And if you think things aren't right in your church, then you need to go to Jesus and say, what in the world's wrong with our church? But you don't get to play judge, jury, and executioner in, in your church. And the reason why you might think that way is because you haven't spent enough time in Scripture where we're to love each other first and foremost. First and foremost. There is a necessity to study Scripture before we will ever be revived. If you want our church to experience revival, you better take serious the idea of instruction that comes through the Scripture. And where else does it come through? The Holy Spirit, which gets me to my last point. So often we view the Holy, the Holy Spirit in Baptist churches as something that you don't talk about. To be quite honest, the charismatic and Pentecostal neighbors have done that to us because they've used the Holy Spirit as a means of providing some sort of proof that you actually have the Holy Spirit. And so we're thinking, well, if there's got to be proof, I don't want to even talk about it. And I certainly don't want to get in an argument about it. Which is what usually happens, especially here in South Louisiana, uh, where we don't understand our own beliefs enough to, to understand someone else's. But this is what a Baptist believes about the Holy Spirit, okay? You're in a Baptist church. I'm going to tell you what Baptists believe about the Holy Spirit. The day that you give your life to Christ, where you say, I surrender my life to Him, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm living for Him. He paid the debt for my sin. I'm leaving it all behind. And I'm following Him for the rest of my life. Every manner of life, I'm going to live for Him. That is salvation in a Baptist church. And in that moment, God says, I'm giving you this gift. It is the way that you and I will be connected from now until the day you are in glory with me. It is my spirit. You will never have to wonder a day about who I am, my presence in your life. You may make some mistakes along the way, but I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to give you power to do the most important thing 
that can ever come across your mind that would be important to me. I'm going to give you the power to do, and that is to go make disciples of my son Jesus. So the Spirit does two things, and God doesn't waste any time. He provides us at the moment we, we trust His Son, Jesus. It says, you're going to experience the fullness of who I am in your life, and you're going to have the power to make disciples. Because here in this passage, and the one that we will look at next, next week, these two things are inextricably linked together. I am providing you the Spirit to instruct, to empower to give to you the fullness of who I am. And I'm also giving you this power so that you can go and you can make disciples of who? Ultimately, the whole world, meaning there is nothing out there that can stand against you because you have been given the power to make disciples of everyone. Everyone. Now, our problem in that is that we don't always feel that spirit, do we? We don't, we weren't always in that subjective place where we want to feel something in order to know that it's there. That's kind of a postmodern idea, by the way. <laughs> you got to feel it to know that it's there. You know how we know that it's there? You know how we know the Spirit of God is with us? Jesus said it. That's all I need to know. He's not going to lie to me. He's not going to lead me astray. He's there. Now, the degree to which you experience that, that's up to you. That truly is up to you. There are those, there are those that believe that, that you're never able to really do that, that you're so depraved in your life that you really have no control over that process. And that may be before that argument might be able to be made as you approach your salvation. But after you've given your life to Christ, there's some decisions to be made. How do we know this? The New Testament's full of them. These people that chose to do things their own way without the fullness of God embracing them and enveloping what they were doing. Sometimes... Forgiveness came their way and sometimes it didn't. So there's, there's this opportunity with the Spirit that belongs to us as individuals. Does that mean anybody else gets to look at your life and say, man, shame on them. They really just don't let God work in their life. Or they've got so much trouble in their life because they just keep, they just keep pushing God away. And all. We, none of us have the right to do that to another person. In a church, if we see a person, and in our spirit, God speaking to us, says to us, that person's in trouble. Things are not right for them. They're distant from me. And I can't seem to break through. I need you to go be my hands and my feet. I need you to be my voice. And I need you to love them back to me. But if you're ready to judge a person, you'll never hear God say that. But if your ears are open to His Spirit, you will. So this very subjective truth about the Spirit is valuable not only for each and every one of us. We quickly see it becomes of utmost importance to the fellowship.
So as we move through this, we're going to see these things. We're going to see the Spirit alive in the church and how it is making things right and overcoming some obstacles that could have never been overcome before. We're going to see that people take that Spirit and by its power declare the good news of Jesus Christ in ways that they never even imagined before. And we're also going to see that they've taken the instruction that Jesus has given them and the experience that they're having with the Holy Spirit and they become a force in the world where the world begins to say, what are we going to do about these folks? They're turning the whole world upside down. <laughs> Can you imagine today? Can you imagine today? If on CNN and Fox News and everywhere else, what are we going to do with these Christians? They're turning the whole world upside down with this message of Jesus. The one that we thought we had put away and put down for good, here they are. And it's more powerful than ever. That's revival. That's revival. And it begins in this book. This book here, this one. This is my grandmother's Bible. One of them. This is the one that's been best cared for, I guess. A lot of them, bind was broken, the pages. Couldn't read some of them. She had so many notes written in her pages. She got to where some, some parts of it you couldn't read because she'd written notes for the other parts. My grandmother lost her husband and all her children, including my mother, before she passed away. She had a stroke. She was a school teacher for 65 years, taught oil painting for at least 50 of those 65 years. Very talented. Played a pump organ. Had an old pump organ in her house, and she could play that pump organ. Had the old stops. She had, to, you know, all that stuff. But she lived the last years of her life in a nursing home bed because that's how you had to do things, you know. Couldn't, couldn't do anything different. We were at home. No mother. Five kids. We couldn't take care of her at home. So she laid in a nursing home bed in Gloucester, Mississippi, pretty much by herself. Every day. And you know what she did every day, all day? She read this book. I mean, she read this book. Not for any other reason than to know the fullness of God in her life. Laying in a nursing home bed where she couldn't, she couldn't speak anymore. Die, 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 die. was about as good as she could get. Paralyzed her right hand, not her left hand. I don't know why God did that. She couldn't paint. She couldn't do anything. She could read that book. And she developed the fullness or continued in her fullness with God. And you know, the first time I ever heard that story didn't come off my own lips. It came from another pastor who knew her as an art student. And he had been to see, and I heard him share that story. 
And it struck so true to me. And I realized how what she had done, just reading her Bible and knowing that God had never left her, how it had affected that one young man that had gone to see her. And how he was now a bivocational pastor and he was standing in a pulpit sharing that with other people, some of them that knew or some of them that didn't. And what that was going to mean to the church as it left from that place that day. Who all would talk about that kind of faithfulness and that kind of goodness about a life that was laid up in a nursing home that couldn't speak and couldn't use her hands? And we sometimes wonder what in the world God is up to because we think that we can see the big picture and the little details too. My goodness, no, we cannot. What God is doing, He's going to do, and He's going to do it in the way that He does it, but it's up to you and it's up to me if we're going to be a part of that. If we're going to pay attention to His Scripture, if we're going to allow the fullness of God to work, through His Spirit in, my, in our life, if we're going to let that speak to a world that is lost, then we're in good shape. We can be a church and we can be His people. But if we're not willing to, to start here and to let that strengthen us and change us and grow us, then we might as well do something else. Surely. Next week when we look at this, we are going to look at the mission of the church in great detail. This matters to God and how we live in it because a lost world matters to Him as much as you and I matter to Him. Christians are not a chosen class of people. They are a forgiven class of people. And that door has been swung wide open to everyone and that is our responsibility to the world and it is the responsibility to our God to do precisely what He's given us the work to do. Let's pray together.